0: But it's good to see everybody this morning. We're continuing our study of the Holy Spirit this morning, and today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be picking up at verse 12, and we're going to be talking about the fact that Scripture describes our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it's entirely possible that that's a phrase that you've heard referenced many times. Maybe that's something that you've heard in in multiple contexts, especially if you grew up in a, in a church context, it might be a phrase that you're familiar with, but one of the things that I've discovered is that even though many people, I think, are at least somewhat familiar with that phrase, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, many people don't know where that phrase comes from or the context in which it was given, and so we're going to be looking at that today as we just continue our study of what Scripture reveals to us about the Holy Spirit, who He is, and what He does, And if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to pick up with verse 12, and I'll read down to verse 20. This is what it says. The Apostle Paul says, All things are lawful for for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to spend some time together this morning, looking at what your word reveals, looking at the different things that we see in the scriptures that you've placed before us. And Lord, we pray that as we Think about this idea of our bodies being a temple of your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would take this teaching to heart. We know, Lord, that when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, we're looking at something that is very much countercultural. We're looking at something that this world does not embrace. We're reading something together that is really the exact opposite of the governing philosophy that many people in this world hold on to quite, quite closely. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand more about your desires for our lives as men and women who have been purchased by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, as men and women who are described in this portion of Scripture as, as a temple of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that our minds and our hearts would understand your Word together now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this portion of scripture is from the book of First Corinthians, and when you look at the book of First Corinthians, it's one of the more—I mean, it's, it, I mean—all scripture is interesting, but when you look at the context in which this book was written, there's a lot of parallels to our modern-day culture. This book was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it while he was in the city of Ephesus near the end of a three-year visit that he paid there as he was ministering to the people of Ephesus there. We know that earlier, Paul had planted this church with the help of Priscilla and Aquila. They were two fellow tent makers that the apostle Paul worked with, and they were also gifted at discipling people, And so, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and others that partnered with them planted this church at Corinth. And they had spent about a year and a half working there to try and get things established, to try and get things built. Do you ever notice how long it really takes to get something built, though? I think it's interesting that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. I'm convinced that it takes at least three years to gain momentum with just about anything we're trying to build. And so, that year and a half mark that Paul was there with uh, the people in Corinth, you would look at that and you would say, that that was enough to to get them started, but his hope and his desire was that they would then press on towards spiritual maturity in the weeks, and the months, and the years that would follow his time together with them. And he also wanted this church to experience unity in their walk with Jesus Christ, that they would partner together to advance the gospel, because they were living in the midst of a very decadent culture. This was a culture that was. I mean, it just basically showed off its arrogance. It showed off its wealth. It showed off, uh, in many respects, its perversion. And there were all sorts of things going on in the context that, that the Corinthians were living in. And so Paul wanted them to work together, to reach a spot of unity, to partner together, to make the gospel known in the midst of that dark and decadent culture. But there were some things that were getting in the way of the believers in Corinth accomplishing this. And so Paul, through this letter, he tries to address one at a time these different things that he notices that are getting in the way of this work that they've been called to do. And he explains some foundational areas of theology to them all throughout the course of the book, and he shows us not just details that we're supposed to commit to memory, but he shows us how we're supposed to live these details out. And in this portion of 1 Corinthians, you have the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul showing us what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, and to not allow anything other than Jesus Christ to dominate our lives. And you see, Paul, and I'm going to revisit the verses we just read together um, as we kind of work our way through this, but when you look at verses 12 through 14, you have the Apostle Paul reminding the church at Corinth that they should not be dominated by anything. The way he phrases it here, he says, all things are lawful for me. Now, that's not That's not his words here. He's quoting them, but just read it as he says. He says, all things are lawful for me, and then his rebuttal is, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, before the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So you have the Apostle Paul saying these things here in this portion of Scripture, trying to make this clear, this idea of not being dominated by anything unhealthy to the church at Corinth. Now, in just about a month, actually less than that really at this point, school's going to be back in session. And by the way, those of you that are young people heading back to school, I understand that you are not really, like, that, that me as an adult, that I'm not really allowed to talk about school yet. It's a little soon for that. You know what used to annoy me when I was your age? When I would watch TV with my family and how once you got to the month of August, everything was a back-to-school commercial. It's was like, I still have a whole month. I don't need to be reminded what happens at the end of this month, right? Everything was a back-to-school commercial. Everything that comes to our mail, it's back-to-school. Well, in less than a month, I know sadly, or maybe not sadly for some of us, uh, school's going to be back in session. And those of you that have been part of our church family for a while know that by God's grace, one of the things that the Lord has done uh, throughout the course of the history of our church is that during the, the school year, during the semesters, we typically see a fair amount of college students who attend worship services with us. I'm always super grateful for that. When I was in college, I was committed to the ministry of a local church, and I stayed committed to that church throughout the course of my college years and it was a wonderful benefit so I'm grateful that the Lord sends college students here to be with us I'm glad they come but it's also very clear to me when I interact with different students that some are at very different seasons of maturity some the second they finish high school might as well be 35 years old like they they are mature you can you can I mean you just watch them navigate life so well You see the way they interact with other people, the way they talk, the way they maintain eye contact, Um, and I I look at that and I think, wow, that is a young age to be demonstrating that level of maturity, but I love to see that, and then some, you know, I don't know what the best way to describe this would be, but one of the ways that I think of it is it becomes very obvious to me that this is the first time that they've been able to live their day-to-day life outside the supervision of their parents. And uh, I still remember when I was uh, in college, um, my senior year, my wife is a few months older than me, and she had just finished a few months before I did, and I said, it's not the same on campus. She said, what do you mean? I said, I'm telling you, it's not the same on campus right now. I said, people were more mature when we started here. And she's like, come on. And I said, no, I'm telling you the truth. And then when we pulled into the off-campus dorms, Someone jumped out a window onto a mattress that was on top of some bushes and was like, woo landed it. And I was like, that's what I'm talking about. It's like that all the time. She was like, was it that way when, when we started out? But some people you see like great maturity. Other people you see them and it looks like, you know, they're just happy to not be directly supervised like they once were. And so they tend to do, you know, maybe whatever they want until reality sets in. And in regard to spiritual things, when you look at the church at Corinth, and you look at the way Paul is addressing things here, it actually appears that the the Corinthian church was struggling to get past that same attitude that sometimes college freshmen at times can struggle with. Now, Scripture tells us that we have been set free in Jesus Christ. That's one of the benefits and blessings that we have as followers of Christ, as we trust in Him. But some members of the Corinthian church were interpreting this freedom incorrectly, they were interpreting this as meaning they could do whatever they wanted, even if their decisions violated the moral will of God. And this was getting back to the Apostle Paul, and he was like, no, you guys aren't understanding what I taught you while I was with you. And Paul, he, he quotes the Corinthians to the Corinthians in the verses that we just read there together. It seems that some of them maybe were saying, all things are lawful for me meaning I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful for me. What do you think? If someone said that to you, just in conversation, all things are lawful for me, would you say, okay, I don't think you understand how culture works. I don't think you understand how society works. I don't think you understand how law works. For someone to say, all things are lawful for me. This is their way of saying, basically, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. And so Paul addressed that. And he replied with a spiritual reality check. And what did he tell them? Well, he told them, look, not everything you want to do is helpful. There are certain things that you and your old nature may want to do, and just because you want to do it doesn't automatically mean it's going to be good. It doesn't mean it's going to be helpful. It doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial. It doesn't mean it's going to be Christ honoring. Not everything you want to do is helpful. And the other thing that you could see that he starts talking to them about is this idea of the fact that they thought they were living like free people, but he's saying, no, what's actually happening is you're being dominated and mastered by your sin and rebellion. You think you're, you're living with freedom, and I'm telling you, you're being dominated and mastered by your own sin. Another saying they appear to have been saying that he quotes in this passage here is this idea that, hey, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, what do you suppose they were getting at with that? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, some of us may be saying, well, yeah, isn't that just how, like, the human body works, right? Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, so they just go well together. What do you you think they were getting at when they would say different things like this? It appears what they may have meant was that they thought it was perfectly acceptable to just feed their fleshly appetites. That's really what they were getting at with sayings like this. It seems they were using this to basically justify their casual attitude toward one area of fleshly appetite in particular, this idea of engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. And basically, they had convinced themselves that they were free to do so in the same way that I, you know, sometimes when we look at it, it it seems like people can justify just about anything, right? Same way people in our culture, people in our era tend to justify doing whatever we want. I mean, I think the human heart is really good at making excuses. We could come up with excuses to justify just about anything we want. I have some, I won't mention who this is, but I have somebody in my extended family who never keeps a car for any length of time. And every time he gets a car, I look at it and I'm like, all right, I'm not even going to remember that this is your car, because you're not even going to keep it a full year. And he always tells me why he's going to keep it a full year. And I'm like, no, you won't. And he almost never does. And he almost, and, and I'll ask him, I'll be like, well, well, why did you get rid of this one? Why did you get rid of the truck and, uh, and get a sedan this time? It's like, well, you know, I was driving my friend around and I discovered that he had a hard time getting up into the truck, so I thought I needed to get something lower. All right, and then you go from the sedan back to a truck. Well, why'd you go back to a truck? Well... In the winter, it's nice when you're higher than the snow, and I think we're going to have a bad winter. And so I I, I think, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And I've discovered, you know, if, if we want to, we can come up with excuses for just about anything, buying a car, eating whatever we want, engaging whatever activity we want. We're good at coming up with excuses. And apparently, the Corinthians were quite adept at coming up with excuses for their activity. And the truth is, When you look at the things that we engage in bodily, and this is a point that the Apostle Paul is going to be making to them, these things that we engage in with our bodies, these things that we engage in physically in our day to day life, these are not separate, uh, these are things that are not separate and distinct from our spiritual life. They're the visible fruit of what's going on inside our heart. The activities that you and I engage in, the way we treat people, the way we interact with people, the way we treat our bodies, the way we carry ourselves in this world, these things are intertwined with our spiritual maturity. They're connected to future blessings. Uh, Heavenly rewards that the Lord speaks about in Scripture have a direct connection to how we steward our lives on this earth right now. Experiencing divine discipline is often connected to some of the things that we justify in our lives and, and choose to engage in. And what Paul was trying to help the Corinthians to understand, now keep in mind, they're living in a decadent culture that's telling them the exact opposite, and he only was with them a year and a half, so he only had a short amount of time with them. But what he was trying to help them understand is he's saying these things in this passage and confronting some of the things that they were using as excuses, he's saying, look, basically this is what it is. You're being dominated by things that are hurtful and sinful, and the truth is, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can only have one Lord, and that's Him, not some, something else or someone else. It's like we're told in Romans 10.9, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The Scripture is inviting us not to live our lives in such a way that that we're welcoming the lordship of unhealthy things into our day-to-day lives. Christ is Lord. And Paul was trying to encourage the Corinthians to live as men and women who acknowledge Christ as Lord. And here's the thing. In our lives, we're always bowing the knee to something or someone. Either Jesus is our Lord or, or we're bowing in submission to our fleshly appetites. Either Jesus is our Lord, or we're bowing our, our mindset to the mindset of this generation. Either Jesus is our Lord, or we're, we're bowing to the approval of other people. There are examples of each of those three missteps among the Corinthians when you look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul says, but it's really no different than the struggle you and I experience right here and right now. Now, the Corinthians, through faith in Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, had been set free from the, from the dominion and the domination of sin and Satan and death. They'd been set free from that, but it appears that they were dipping their toes right back into a life of slavery, and they were mistakenly calling that slavery freedom, and they were almost bragging about it to one another. And so you have Paul confronting this and, and challenging them to to reach up for a higher standard of glorifying Christ because what he tries to explain to them is that their, their bodies are members of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, "'Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute?' Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh.' But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, sometimes when I speak with fellow believers, I can sense a certain amount of discouragement in their tone related to the present state of our culture. And I I can admit to you that sometimes when I look at certain things in our culture, I find myself a bit discouraged as well. You know, if, if, if we look at what Scripture says and we see what's taking place, All around us, there are a lot of things that probably concern you. There's certainly a lot of things that concern me as well. It's very obvious that many of the values that we consider biblical and right and correct are not very fashionable to many people in this generation, and I think it can be very difficult for us as people who know Christ, who have been set free from all sorts of things that we once engaged in. I think it could be difficult for us to observe what's taking place in culture and then observe the impact that embracing that sinfulness is having on our culture, and yet, by God's grace, the gospel continues to advance in the midst of a world that, that tries its best to get along without Christ, and so we have hope in the midst of some of the difficult things that we face and we experience. And you know, I wonder if we could time travel back to the city of Corinth as the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the church during that day, and I wonder what our, in, our impression would be about some of the things that we would see in that visit, because I imagine we would be shocked and we would be horrified by some of the cultural norms that we would see in a context like that. In the city of Corinth, there was a prominent temple that was dedicated to the pagan love goddess Aphrodite. And there were over a thousand prostitutes who were employed at that temple, and part of the worship rituals that people in Corinth would engage in at that temple involved inappropriate activity with these prostitutes. Now, that's the kind of immorality that the people in the city of Corinth had grown up with. That's what they were used to. They thought this was normal behavior. And it's possible that even when you look at some of these people who had become believers in Christ, that some of them were not at a spot of spiritual maturity yet, where this disturbed them to the level that it should have disturbed them. I'm also guessing by Paul's, Paul's words in this passage that there may have been some members of the church who were still employing the services of some of these prostitutes based on what he says here about not uniting themselves with one of them. And so he asks them, he says, so then... So he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, when you look at this, why do you suppose Paul was so emphatic in that statement? Why do you suppose he said that with such force? Why do you suppose he was so aggressive in how he addressed that? He referred to the church here as members of Christ. Now, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are joined to him. Scripture describes that as being united to him. The moment we believe, we become part of his body. And when you look through the New Testament, one of the things that it makes, it makes very clear to us is that the greatest everyday illustration that we have the opportunity to, to observe of the union between Christ and his church is what? It's the institution of marriage. Ephesians 5 tells us it's a a great illustration of the love of Christ and His church. No other human relationship compares. And in a Christ-centered marriage, you have things like commitment, you have the sharing of a name, you have genuine relational intimacy that's far beyond the nature of other relationships. And when you look at Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us this when you look at verses 31 and 32, it says, therefore... And by the way, you have Paul here quoting from Genesis 2, but he's saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So now, as I read what Paul taught in this passage, when you, when you get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and when you compare that to Ephesians chapter 5, I have to admit that, that sexual immorality doesn't seem all that far from complete blasphemy in my thinking. When you look at the fact that the greatest visible illustration in our day-to-day lives of the love of Christ for His church, that that's marriage and the union that takes place in marriage, I think one of the main reasons that Satan loves to encourage people to, to delve into immorality is because it, it tries to mar that picture that Christ is giving us through marriage. You know, it's the, the, in marriage we have the process of taking two lives that were designed to glorify Christ. And then if that gets marred, you have people using their bodies to profane the most visible example of Christ's love for the church. And I want to point something out because... I think, especially in our culture right now, and certainly in the culture that the Corinthians were living in at this point, this is an area of primary temptation. This is not an area of secondary temptation for most people. When it comes to sexual immorality, this is one of the primary areas of temptation that many, if not most people, are struggling with. But it's not the only area of temptation. I just want to say this. If we're struggling with that temptation, or if you're tempted in another area, I want to give you five suggestions that I think can help you overcome that area of temptation that you might be wrestling with, whatever it may be. Now, again, our culture calls temptation freedom, but it's not freedom, it's a form of slavery. And, and yet, Jesus wants us to experience the freedom that He purchased for us, He wants us to experience the freedom that He secured. In the shedding of his blood upon the cross, he took our sin, he took our shame upon himself so that we could be set free from it, and he wants us to walk in and live in that new life. Let me suggest five specific things that I think can be very helpful in just about any area of temptation, and the first suggestion I have is this. Preach the gospel to yourself. No matter how long you've known Jesus Christ, no matter how long you've walked with him, Continue to preach the gospel to yourself. Don't just treat the gospel like it's for people who as of yet don't know Jesus, because action follows our beliefs. As we think, we will do. And so if we're preaching the gospel to our hearts, if we're reinforcing our belief in Jesus Christ and the truth and the application of his gospel, what's going to happen is what we preach to our hearts, what we meditate on in our minds, that's going to come out in our lives. I think that's a foundational tool that the Lord's given to us as people who are trying to resist temptation in a world that keeps slinging it at us. Second suggestion I'll give you is this. Know the truth of Scripture so you don't fall prey to the the false promises of Satan. One of the reasons that when we gather together, we spend so much time looking at what Scripture says is because the Lord's given us His Word to point us to Him and to equip us for day-to-day life. We don't look at this as an add-on. We don't look at this as something that we're just saying, yeah, that might be helpful, one of many tools. When you look at, at the reasons that the Lord's given us Scripture, He's, he's helped us to understand His heart. He's, he's helping us through it, not to give in to the deceitful promises of Satan. And if we know the Scripture, if we know the Scripture, we're not going to be likely to fall prey to the false promises, the false assurances of Satan. I had the privilege just the other day to give somebody the first physical copy of a Bible that he ever owned. Someone that came over and visited our house. And I, I had been holding on to this Bible. I recently got it. And I've been holding on to it with the thought that I wanted to give it to him. And uh, as he was over our house, I was chatting with him for a little bit. And I said, hey, I have something for you. And I'm curious if you would want it. And he said, what is it? And I gave him the Bible. And, uh, and he said, I've never owned it physical copy of the Bible before. And I encouraged him to read a few different things. I encouraged him to read Matthew 5 and 6 and then the Gospel of John. I said, start there. If you're not sure where to start, start there. And I thought, what a unique privilege that was to be able to share that with this guy. And I was just so grateful to be able to to have that privilege. And for those of us that own copies of the Scripture, I mean, even if you don't own a physical copy, it's so easy to access the Word of God in this digital age. And the Lord wants us to know His Word. And if we know his word, if we commit it to mind, if we commit it to heart, we're less likely to be deceived. I think a third thing that can be helpful for us if we're wrestling with any area of temptation is prayer. I think one of the reasons why so many of us fall into our temptations is we have this habit of relying on our own strength. And one of the things the Lord teaches us over time is that our strength is not sufficient. We need his strength. So pray for strength, not your own strength, but the strength that the Lord supplies. I think a fourth thing that can be helpful for us is that we make an active decision not to surround ourselves with wickedness. Be careful who you spend your time with. Be careful of the context you place yourself in. Be careful of the things that you put before your face on a day-to-day basis or feed your mind. Don't surround yourself with wickedness. If you surround yourself with wickedness, you're giving yourself more and more and more opportunity to give into it. And the fifth is related to that. Run from sin. Run from sin. Sometimes we think, you know what? I can just stand here and fight. Well, there's a time for that. But most of the time, what does Scripture tell us to do when it comes to our areas of temptation? Flee. Get out of there, wherever there is. Flee. Run away from it. A lot of times it's our own pride that tells us, you know what? I could stand right here and not be affected. Do you ever have people tell you that? Like somehow they're special? Like nothing tempts them. And yet, what does Scripture say? Our temptations are common to us all. We're all tempted with the same exact things, just at different times and in different ways, but it's all the same stuff. And when I hear people say, oh, you know, that's not really an area of temptation for me or whatever, it's like, oh, good, so you've let let your guard down there so the devil knows exactly where to just swoop in and, and deceive you. One of the things that I've learned over time is that it's probably healthier for us to say, you know what, I could very easily go in that direction given the right impetus and the right context and the right motivation. I could very easily go in this direction given the right context, the right motivation. I could very easily give in to anything if I start relying on myself and just proudly saying to myself, you know what, I'm not susceptible to that. It's like, really? Like, don't kid yourself. We're susceptible to all the categories, and yet the strength of Christ is sufficient for us in the midst of every context we're in. And the Word of God encourages us, don't just stick around in the midst of it, don't sit in it, don't hang around it, run, flee, get out of that context. I often think of Joseph in the book of Genesis when Potiphar's wife starts trying to tempt him. What did Joseph do? He ran. Now, I think of Joseph as a very godly guy, but I think that the reason Joseph ran, at least in part, is he thought, you know what, the longer I stick around here, the more I'm likely to give in to this temptation. I just got to get out of here. And if I'm out of here, then I'm putting myself in a spot where the temptation's not even an option because I'm not even there. And so I think the Lord invites us to, to run and to keep in mind, we are not our own. I don't belong to me, I belong to the Lord. You don't belong to you, you belong to the Lord. You have the Apostle Paul, when you look at verses 18 down to verse 20, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Again, that idea of run, right? Run from this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he he says here in verse 19, he says, or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Many of our family trips through the years, I'm kind of sad about this, actually, when I think about it, because my kids are all, they're all old now. I envy those of you that have little kids. I really envy those of you that uh, have ventured into the to the grandparent phase i know it's not quite that time yet for us but i miss when my kids were little and so like karen i saw you earlier walking your granddaughter down the steps and i was like i purposely walk behind you because i just enjoy watching her interact with you and i was like that's so cute i just love stuff like that and i miss when my kids were little i like them now they're fine you know they're fine now mostly fine sometimes fine they're sometimes fine I loved when my children were in single digits. That was such a fun season. And so we would oftentimes try and figure out day trips, different fun fun things to do, and a lot of those day trips would involve us driving to either northeastern Pennsylvania where a lot of my family lives, or central Pennsylvania where some of the things we like to visit happen to be. And a lot of times what would happen is we'd drive during the day one direction and then come back in the evening and see everything we saw during the day, but from a different perspective because it was night. And one of the things that I make a habit of doing as we're driving is when, I, when we pass a church, I pray for the church. I pray for its leadership. I pray that it would be a church that's faithful to preaching the Word of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed there. And I think I notice every church along the way. My dad ran a grocery store when I was growing up. He notices every grocery store to this day wherever we go. Well, when you're a pastor, you notice every local church as you pass by. And there's one church that when we're passing by during the day... It looks very simple. It doesn't look very elaborate. And uh, it's about halfway into our journey when we're visiting things in central PA. And it catches my eye because it's close to the road. But I've also noticed that when we're driving back and it's nighttime, that church lights itself up. It's got lighting outside the building that looks really, really good. And it's funny, it's a very simple building, but the lighting makes that, that structure look very, very impressive. Almost like that little church is a cathedral. So you pass it during the day, it looks simple. When you pass it at night, it looks like a cathedral. And in the closing verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have the Apostle Paul speaking of a temple. Speaking of a temple, right? Bringing that Old Testament imagery of the temple into the conversation. Now, when we hear, when we use that word temple, again, we typically think of an impressive building, an an impressive structure of some kind. But we're told here that what he's talking about when he's referencing the concept of a temple is that it's our body that's being referenced. Your body, my body, that's the temple he's speaking of. The bodies of Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This literally means that God the Holy Spirit personally lives within believers, that he lives within us. Do you sense his presence, his guidance, his comfort, his counsel as he gives you wisdom? As he points you in directions, as he encourages you to maybe do things like give someone specific a Bible, or talk to someone who doesn't know about the Lord, or just interact with people in one way or another, the Holy Spirit, he lives within us. Our bodies are sanctuaries that he joyfully indwells. And that's an amazing thought that I think it can really deeply impact our lives in powerful ways when we come to believe that truth. But when you look at yourself, now maybe you don't do this, but I think many people do this. When you look at yourself, I would suspect that many of us probably spend a fair amount of time actually dwelling on our imperfections. Now, when you look at yourself in a mirror, what, what stands out to you? Do you primarily notice your imperfections or your weaknesses or your limitations or whatever category you want to put that in, right? I, I often do that to myself. You know, I'll look at myself and I'll be like, oh, by the way, we were joking in Bible study the other night. Do you ever look at yourself in a picture and just be like, oh, I don't like how that picture looks. That's terrible. And then three years go by and you see the same picture and you're like, man, I looked great. I looked great. I think every picture just needs a few years to season and then they all look really good. And sometimes we look at our bodies and we're like, oh, why is it doing that now? Or what, what, what's going on with that? Or it, just whatever it may be. We look at our imperfections and at times I think when we do that, we can excel at making ourselves feel pretty bad. And then you look at a passage of Scripture like this, and it shakes us awake, and it reminds us that God is delighted to take up residence within your body, that He's not ashamed to be part of what's going on with you, that He's not not ashamed of living with inside of us. He literally lives within us. He's made us a temple in which He resides. That's what Paul's trying to help us understand. By the way, you treat your body and your day-to-day life and other people quite differently when you start to see yourself as a temple of the Holy Spirit, when you acknowledge the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And since he lives within us, how should we treat our bodies? How should we use our bodies? According to the scripture, our bodies should be used as instruments through which God is glorified. We're using our bodies for anything less than what would bring glory to God. We're proving that our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what his ministry looks like in our day-to-day lives, that that understanding has not yet become quite rooted in our hearts, that it's not deeply rooted there. My wife received a message several years ago. I actually think it was maybe almost nine or ten years ago. And it was from someone she knew as a child. And uh, we were just talking about this. And the message was from uh, a woman who just simply asked if... If uh, my wife and our family would pray for her daughter, because her daughter became very disillusioned about not having success when she started an acting career. And her solution in her disappointment was to turn to a life of prostitution. And so she got involved in doing this, and obviously the mother was feeling quite heartbroken and uh, quite devastated over this, and she asked us to be praying. And I'm grateful that the Lord can redeem tragedies like this. I'm grateful that in time that this was something that that we watched some reconciliation and healing and and repentance happen here. But this is just one of the ways our propensity to disrespect the Holy Spirit and the bodies that we've been given uh, can be manifested. I don't think that young lady was thinking of herself as the temple of the Holy Spirit when she made some of those decisions. And I think in our low moments, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really thinking a whole lot about ourselves, our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit when we're giving in to our areas of temptation. We're typically forgetting all about that theological reality. But knowing this to be the case, and I'll just say this as we finish up this morning, You have Paul giving the the church at Corinth an encouragement that I hope we'll take to heart as well. He wanted them to understand, look, you're not your own. You're not your own. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your selfish desires. You were bought with a price. Jesus gave himself on the cross to redeem us from sin, to grant us a new and abundant life through faith in him. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness, He's brought us into his kingdom of light. The moment we trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence within us. And knowing this to be true, we should no longer allow ourselves to be dominated by the sin of this world or the mindset of this world or the attitude or the actions of this world because our bodies are members of Christ. We are not our own. We're called to glorify him in all ways at all times and here's the thing you and i in the midst of all we face in this world there's all during the days that you and i have on this planet there's always going to be something coming at us it's either going to come at us from the devil or the world or our own areas of weakness and temptation but then we come back to a portion of scripture like this and it says listen if you're trying to live for yourself if you're thinking that your life is your own if you're forgetting that you were purchased with the blood of jesus christ and that the holy spirit delights to live within you, remind yourself of these truths today so that the allure of Satan, so that the allure of this world, so that the allure of our old nature won't have sway over our hearts, and so that we could ultimately look at our lives and say, Lord, thank you so much for this life. Thank you for this body you've blessed me with. Thank you for the opportunity to use it to glorify your name. May that be what we choose to do with the bodies and the lives that the Lord's entrusted over to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we could look at a portion of Scripture like this today and see loving words that were delivered with some confrontation. It's obvious that the Apostle Paul was trying to be a bit confrontational as he was addressing these issues with the church at Corinth. But Lord, we look at this and we say, this is the type of words that would only come from someone who cares about you type of things that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down in this passage of Scripture, these aren't the type of things that he would have written down or phrased this way if he didn't have genuine concern over the spiritual well-being of the Corinthian church. And Lord, we pray that we would take these things to heart as well. Lord, we know that the things we spent our time together this morning discussing, this is not fashionable. This is not something that this world embraces. The world looks at these ideas and says, no thanks. This world embraces slavery. This world embraces death. But Father, we're so grateful that you've set us free through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful that we don't need to go back to the life of of slavery that you set us free from, that we could walk in the newness of life as men and women who truly are free. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go about our days, as we live our lives, as we Use the bodies that you've given uh, to us, that we would use these bodies for your glory. Again, acknowledging that we don't belong to ourselves. So Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for all the things you've been revealing to us from your word related to the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the fact that you look at us with compassion, you choose to live within us, and that you're giving us your guidance and your direction and your strength as we seek to live out the teaching of your word. We love you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.